Section one of Baled Hay, a drier book than Walt Whitman's Leaves O' Grass. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Baled Hay, a drier book than Walt Whitman's Leaves O' Grass by Bill Nye. Dedication to my wife who has courteously and heroically laughed at my feeble and emaciated jokes, even when she did not feel like it, was again and again started up and agitated successfully the flagging and reluctant applause, who has courageously held my coat through this trying ordeal, and who, even now as I write this, is in the front yard warning people to keep off the premises, until I have another lucid interval. This volume is affectionately inscribed, by the author piazza to the third volume there can really be no excuse for this last book of trite and beautiful sayings i do not attempt in any way to palliate this great wrong i would not do so even if i had an idea what palliate meant it will however add one more to the series of books for which i am to blame and the pleasure of travel will be very much enhanced for me at least there is one friend I always meet on the trains when I travel. He is the news agent. He comes to me with my own books in his arms and tells me over and over again of their merits. He means it, too. What object could he have in coming to me not knowing who I am and telling me of their great worth? Why would he talk that way to me if he did not really feel it? That is one reason I travel so much. When I get gloomy and heartsick, I like to get on a train and be assured once more by a total stranger that my books have never been successfully imitated. Some authors like to have a tall man with a glazed gripsack and whose breath is stronger than his intellect selling their works, but I do not prefer that way. I like the candor and ingeniousness of the train boy. He does not come to the front door while you are at prayers and ring the bell till the hat rack falls down and then try to sell you a book containing two thousand receipts for the blind staggers. He leans gently over you as you look out the car window and he puts some pecan meats in your hand and thus wins your trusting heart. Then he sells you a book and takes an interest in you. This book will go to swell the newsboy's armful, and if there be any excuse under the sun for its publication aside from the royalty, that is it. I have taken great care to thoroughly eradicate anything that would have the appearance of poetry in this work, and there is not a thought or suggestion contained in it that would soil the most delicate fabric. Do not read it all at once, however, in order to see whether he married the girl or not, Take a little at a time, and it will cure gloom on the similia similibus curanter principle. If you read it all at once, and it gives you the heaves, I am glad of it, and you deserve it. I will not bind myself to write the obituary of such people. Hudson, Wisconsin, September 5, 1883 Baled Hay, a novel novelette I never wrote a novel because I always thought it required more of a mashed raspberry imagination than I could muster. But I was the business manager once, for a year and a half, of a little two-bit novelette that has never been published. I now propose to publish it, because I cannot keep it to myself any longer. Allow me, therefore, to reminisce. 
Harry Bevins was an old schoolmate of mine in the days of, and although Bevins was not his sure enough name, it will answer for the purposes herein set forth. At the time of which I now speak, he was more bashful than a book agent, and was trying to promote a cream-colored mustache and buff donegals on the side. Suffice it to say that he was mildly in love with Fanny Buttonhook, and too bashful to say so by telephone. Her name wasn't Buttonhook, but I will admit it for the sake of argument. Harry lived over at Kalamazoo, we will say, and Fanny at Oshkosh. These were not the exact names of the towns, but I desire to bewilder the public a little in order to avoid any harassing disclosures in the future. It is always well enough, I find, to deal gently with those who are alive and moderately muscular. Young Bevins was not especially afraid of old man Buttonhook or his wife. He didn't dread the enraged parent worth a cent. He wasn't afraid of anybody under the cerulean dome, in fact, except Miss Buttonhook. But when she sailed down the main street, Harry lowered his colors and dodged into the first place he found open, whether it was a millinery store or a livery stable. Once, in an unguarded moment, he passed so near her that the gentle south wind caught up the cherry ribbon that Miss Buttonhook wore at her throat, and slapped Mr. Bevins across the cheek with it before he knew what ailed him. There was a little vision of straw hat, brown hair, and pink and white cuticle, as it were, a delicate odor of violets, the swish of summer silk, and my friend, Mr. Bevins, put his hand to his head, like a man who has a sunstroke, and fell into a drug store and a state of wild mash, ruin, and helpless chaos. His bashfulness was not seated nor chronic. It was the varioloid, and didn't hurt him only when Miss Buttonhook was present or in sight. He was polite and chatty with other girls, and even dared to be blithe and gay sometimes, too, but when Francis loomed up in the distance, he would climb a rail fence nine feet high to evade her. He told me once that he wished I would erect the framework of a letter to Fanny, in which he desired to ask that he might open up a correspondence with her. He would copy and mail it, he said, and he was sure that I, being a disinterested party, would be perfectly calm. I wrote a letter for him, of which I was moderately proud. It would melt the point on a lightning rod, it seemed to me, for it was just as full of gentleness and poetic soothe as it could be, and Tupper, Webster's Dictionary, and my scrapbook had to give down first rate. Still, it was manly and square-toed. It was another man's confession, and I made it bulge out with frankness and candor. As luck would have it, I went over to Oshkosh about the time Harry's prize epistle reached that metropolis, and having been a confidant of Miss B.'s from early childhood, I had the pleasure of reading Bev's letter and advising the young lady about the correspondence. Finally, a bright thought struck her. She went over to an easy chair and sat down on her foot, coolly proposing that I should outline a letter replying to Harry's, in a reserved and rather frigid manner, yet bidding him dare to hope that, if his orthography and punctuation continued correct, he might write occasionally, though it must be considered entirely sub rosa and abnormally entre nous on account of pa. 
By the way, Pa was a druggist, and one of the salts of the earth. Epsom salts, of course. I agreed to write the letter, swore never to reveal the secret workings of the order, the grips, explanations, passwords, and signals, and then wrote her a nice, demure, startled fawn letter, as brief as the collar to a party dress, and as solemn as the Declaration of Independence. Then I said good-bye, and returned to my own home, which was neither in Kalamazoo nor Oshkosh. There I received a flat letter from William Henry Bevins, enclosing one from Fanny and asking for suggestions as to a reply. Her letter was in Miss Buttonhook's best vein. I remember having written it myself. Well, to cut a long story short, every other week I wrote a letter for Fanny, and on intervening weeks I wrote one for the lover at Kalamazoo. By keeping copies of all letters written, I had a record showing where I was, and avoided saying the same pleasant things twice. Thus the short sweet summer scooted past. The weeks were filled with gladness, and their memory even now comes back to me like a wood-violet-scented vision. A wood-violet-scented vision comes high, but it is necessary in this place. Toward winter the correspondence grew a little tedious, owing to the fact that I had a large and tropical boil on the back of my neck, which refused to declare its intentions or come to a focus for three weeks. In looking over the letters of both lovers yesterday, I could tell by the tone of each just where this boil began to grow up, as it were, between two fond hearts. This feeling grew till the middle of December, when there was a red-hot quarrel. It was exciting and spirited, and after I had alternately flattered myself first from Kalamazoo and then from Oshkosh, it was a genuine luxury to have a row with myself through the medium of the United States mails. Then I made up and got reconciled. I thought it would be best to secure harmony before the holidays so that Harry could go over to Oshkosh and spend Christmas. I therefore wrote a letter for Harry in which he said he had, no doubt, been hasty, and he was sorry. It should not occur again. The days had been like weary ages since their quarrel, he said, vicariously, of course, and the light had been shut out of his erstwhile joyous life. Death would be a luxury unless she forgave him, and Hades would be one long, sweet picnic and lawn festival unless she blessed him with her smile. You can judge how an old newspaper reporter with a scarlet imagination would naturally dash the color into another man's picture of humility and woe. She replied, by proxy, that he was not to blame. It was her waspish temper and cruel thoughtlessness— she wished he would come over and take dinner with them on Christmas Day, and she would tell him how sorry she was. When the man admits that he's a brute and the woman says she's sorry, it behooves the eagle eye of the casual spectator to look up into the blue sky for a quarter of an hour, till the reconciliation has had a chance and the brute has been given time to wipe a damp sob from his coat collar. I was invited to the Christmas dinner. As a successful, reversible amanuensis, I thought I deserved it. I was proud and happy. I had passed through a lover's quarrel and sailed in with white-winged peace on time, and now I reckoned that the second joint, with an irregular fragment of cranberry jelly, 
and some of the dressing, and a little of the white meat, please, was nothing more than right. Mr. Bevins forgot to be bashful twice during the day, and even smiled once also. He began to get acquainted with Fanny after dinner, and praised her beautiful letters. She blushed clear up under her wave, and returned the compliment. That was natural. When he praised her letters, I did not wonder, and when she praised his, I admitted that she was eminently correct. I never witnessed better taste on the part of two young and trusting hearts. After Christmas, I thought they would both feel like buying a manual and doing their own writing, but they did not dare to do so, evidently. They seemed to be afraid the change would be detected, so I piloted them into the middle of the succeeding fall, and then introduced the crisis into both their lives. It was a success. I felt about as well as though I were to be cut down myself, and married off in the very prime of life. Fanny wore the usual clothing adopted by young ladies who are about to be sacrificed on a great horrid man. I cannot give the exact description of her trousseau, but she looked like a hazel-eyed angel, with a freckle on the bridge of her nose. The groom looked a little scared, and moved his gloved hands as though they weighed twenty-one pounds apiece. However, it's all over now. I was up there recently to see them. They are quite happy. Not too happy, but just happy enough. They call their oldest son Bertie. I wanted them to call him William, but they were headstrong and named him Bertie. That wounded my pride, and so I called him Early Bertie. End of section one.